these are the kind of people that will start a fire just so they can rush into the building and save somebody. Now, you may think, whoa, that just crossed the line. Well, yeah, it did. That's the whole point. Hey, everyone, it's Dr. Phil. You're on Fill in the Blanks, and we're talking about toxic personalities, as you know. This is episode number four. We are still talking about narcissism. I'm spending a lot of time on this because it's so important, and I really want to thank everybody for all of your comments and questions. I read them at home. We're in my home tonight, so welcome to my home. I've said I want this to be a conversation rather than a presentation. That's why I'm having a chat with you about this. I'm being guided so much by your questions. And I know when we we finished last time, I said, when you've got a new hammer, sometimes everything looks like a nail. You can walk up to somebody's yard and there's a bunch of holes out in the backyard. You go, oh, somebody got a new shovel. They just couldn't quite dig enough. Well, that's the way it is when you get new information about psychological states of mind, about mental, emotional adjustments. You start hearing about this and learning about this and You start seeing it in yourself, as I said last time, and you start kind of seeing everybody else through that filter. I want to really encourage you against being judgmental about everybody in your life because you're really focused on the narcissistic personality right now. Clearly, we all have some of these traits and characteristics, and sometimes we have them more than others. There's no doubt about it. I've said there are four different types that are generally thought of with narcissism, the classic covert, malignant, and communal. And in the very first episode that we talked about this, I listed all the traits and characteristics that are generally associated with the classic narcissist. And just as a quick review, Here's what I said in the first episode about the traits and characteristics of the classic narcissist. The narcissist needs to be the center of attention, and anybody else that's getting any attention is a threat. Anybody else that's getting laughs, anybody else that's getting focused on, anybody else that's of interest, we need to get rid of them because all the attention needs to be on the narcissist. They have a really pathological need for admiration. They need people to tell them how smart they are, how interesting they are, how special they are. Show them how entitled they are. And if that doesn't happen, they get very upset. They get very frustrated, and they can go on the attack. And when we say a lack of empathy, these folks just don't have the ability to stand in somebody else's shoes. Somebody might show up late to work, and you say, oh, you're never late? What what happened? They might say, oh, just as I was leaving this morning, my dog got out, 
and was hit by a car and killed my dog. What would be a normal reaction? People would go, oh my gosh, you must feel terrible. I'm so sorry. Not a narcissist. A narcissist doesn't have the ability to identify with that person's feelings. So they might say, huh, well, you're here now. Or, oh, what kind of dog? Huh, well, you'll have to get another one. So anyway, what I was wanting to talk to you about, they have no ability to reflect feelings. They have no ability to identify with what that person might be experiencing at the time and be empathetic. Now, this is different from sympathetic. I'm talking about empathetic, where they can identify with that person's feelings, put themselves in their position for a minute, and understand how they might be feeling. They don't have that ability, which is why it's very difficult for them to ever have a close relationship with anybody. So we're talking about a sense of his self-importance and entitlement, preoccupation with fantasies. They create this world of how special and how important they are. They believe that they're special. They believe that they're unique. They're very exploitive. They're very arrogant. So you'll see them doing something that you would think, oh my gosh, they must be embarrassed about this. They don't read the room. You might see them saying or doing something that anybody would be embarrassed to say or do, and everybody in the room's rolling their eyes. The narcissist doesn't see that because they don't read the room. They're not interested in anybody's opinion. They just want to know that they're the focus of attention, and they assume everybody thinks they're as special and unique as they think they are. Again, they're very envious of anybody else that thinks they're special or has a unique perspective or point of view. Now, understand that when we're talking about these kind of people, they're very, very difficult to get along with unless you're willing to subordinate your interest, your needs to these people at all times. And if you're not, they're going to put you in your place. Okay, that was just a quick review for you. And you remember that what I said is their biggest weapon is to gaslight. Gaslighting is where if you criticize them, you confront them, you try to problem solve with them, they turn everything around. And before you know it, you're the problem. And so I went through some explanations on gaslighting and some of the gaslighting phrases that are red flags for you that you're dealing with a narcissist. So again, I want to pull out a little quick section here. It's just like two minutes or so of what I said about gaslighting in episode one, because it's really important that this be on top of your mind with what I'm getting ready to talk about. So here's what I said about gaslighting in episode one. If you're dealing with a narcissist, get out your fire extinguisher because you're going to get gaslit. They are going to talk to you in such a way that anything that goes wrong is your fault. And anything that they do is your fault. You're going to hear phrases. I mentioned a few of them before. I didn't say that. I'm not mad. 
it's not that big a deal. Why are you being so sensitive? Why are you blowing this all out of proportion? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? I just want to be happy. I just want to get along. I'm just trying to have a life here. You're making a big deal out of everything. I'm not upset. I wasn't yelling. I'm just passionate. You're the one with the problem. You're the one that's upset. You're the one that's making a big deal here. What's wrong with you? And it all keeps coming back to what's wrong with you. And they're happy to answer that question. You're too sensitive. You're just too sensitive. You don't like it when I'm happy. You don't like it when I'm doing what I need to do. You have to be in control. You're the one that's judging. You're the one that thinks you're better. It's not me. You think you're better than me. Look at you. You're judging me. That's the gaslighting phrases you're going to hear. And if you don't have a boundary, you're going to take that bait and start questioning yourself whether or not, well, maybe it's me. Now that you have been reminded of what I've defined as the classic narcissist, this need for constant approval, this self-aggrandizement, this fantasy of superiority, all of these things, and the fact that they're going to blame you for everything. And confronting them is a waste of time. Now, let's jump to episode three that we talked about last time when I said these are people that dwell in what I call the dark triad. It's that mix of personality traits that are Machiavellian, narcissistic, and psychopathic. Now, that doesn't sound like a very good person to spend a weekend with or drive across country with, and it's not. You're exactly right, because all of those traits and characteristics I just reviewed for you put a mean edge on that. It isn't just them over here fluffing themselves up and making themselves out to be great. Now they personalize everything. And remember I said their number one credo in life is get them before they get me. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. That's how they think about it. The world's out to get them, and so they're going to go on the attack and get the world before the world gets them. So that means they're always in attack mode. What I want you to think about is if you have really identified, it's not just that you're super sensitized to this, but you have really identified someone as a malignant narcissist. You've seen them exploit people. You've seen them exploit you. You've seen them come to you and brag about how they manipulated and jerked somebody else around. So you know 
they're not ashamed of it. You know they take pride in it. You've seen them gaslight people, or you've seen them gaslight you. Okay, if that's the case, then you need to be aware that this person will use you, will abuse you, and you need to have your guard up because this is somebody that you don't want to have in your life. You know, I said if it's not just that you're super sensitized to this, but you really have identified someone like this, what do you do with them? How do you handle somebody like this? So, look, there's a lot of them out there. I said the estimates are that narcissists are maybe 10, 15% of the population, unless you get into management or entertainment, go to Hollywood or wherever. And then it can be as much as 50% because the world tends to reward aggressive, manipulative people. Not saying it should, because again, you're violating the fundamental principle, don't reward bad behavior. But bad behavior gets rewarded. Think about somebody in your life. Who do you know that is a loudmouth, manipulative, self-aggrandizing jerk and has been rewarded for it? Maybe they're the manager. Maybe they're the boss. Maybe they've got the person in their life you wish you had in yours. Maybe they're the most popular or seem to be at the moment or whatever. Our world tends to reward that kind of thing. Now, I think we're actually cultivating narcissism. Think about it. How many selfies do you think the average teenager, 20-something, takes? And just think about the term, selfie. They're taking pictures of themselves. For somebody from my generation, (laughs) you took pictures of other people. You took pictures of other things. This the whole idea of selfie, taking a picture. Isn't that kind of narcissistic? Isn't that kind of self-aggrandizing? And then you not only take the picture, but we now have platforms We call them social platforms, but we should call them selfie platforms because that's where people take pictures of themselves and they aggrandize it as much as possible and then put them out there for everybody else to vote on. If a teen puts up a picture and it gets 500 likes, and then they put up another one, and it gets only 17, they tumble into the depths of depression. So I wonder if we're not cultivating a narcissistic society. But there's that kind of narcissism, and then there's a malignant narcissism. And my whole point about malignant narcissism is this is a whole other level of menacing here. These are people that are out to get you. They weaponize narcissism. They are not your friend. They're not just over there thumping their own chest and being 
the center of attention at a party. It's malignant in that they're going to do it at your expense. They're going to use you and exploit you to get further along in their life. And they have that mix of antisocial or psychopathic tendencies. And I made a promise to you last time, and then I forgot to do it. I said, I'm going to write myself a note so I don't forget it, and then damned if I didn't forget it. There's one big characteristic that does differentiate the malignant narcissist from the psychopath, and that characteristic is anxiety. The psychopaths, antisocial personality types, don't feel anxiety most of the time. They don't feel fear most of the time, fear of getting caught, fear of consequences. The first study I ever did as a graduate student, and it seemed kind of silly at the time, but one of my professors invited me to participate in this study with him, so it was the first time I was ever published. It involved the prison population. And when you do a clinical study, you have to set forth your hypothesis before you start. You can't get your data and then come in after the fact and decide what it meant. You have to say up front what you're going to try to prove and then see if your data supports it or not. And the theory was that those in prison have a higher body temperature than the general population. And you think, now, what? the hell's that got to do with anything? Well, let me tell you what has to do with anything. Our theory was that those people that are in prison have a higher body temperature than the general population. The average peripheral skin temperature is about 91.6. Now, your body temperature is 98.6, but your peripheral skin temperature is about 91.6. And our hypothesis was that one of the signs that tells people that they're afraid, their autonomic nervous system reaction tells them they're afraid, is that you feel flush, right? Think about it. When you get scared or really aroused, you get flush. Your neck gets red and your cheeks get red and you kind of break out in a sweat and your peripheral skin temperature goes up. And so that tells people be afraid. So let's say you've got a young kid and his buddies say, hey, we're going to rob this liquor store down on the corner. And so he gets there and he gets in the parking lot. All of a sudden, he breaks out in a sweat and his face is all hot. His body's telling him, be afraid. There's something wrong here. There's threat here. His body temperature tells him, be afraid. Now, our theory was that people in prison have a higher body temperature so they don't get that signal that they're already flush, they're already at a higher body temperature. And so when other people ordinarily get the signal, they don't get the signal. And so our theory was that the prison population would have a higher peripheral skin temperature than everybody else, and therefore they wouldn't get the signal that they should be afraid. And we were right. They did have a higher 
peripheral skin temperature than the general population. Now, were we right in our interpretation of it or not, or did we just get lucky? I don't know. But I do know that research tells us that because psychopaths don't feel remorse, they don't feel sorry, so they don't fear doing something that they're going to feel bad about, they don't experience anxiety the way other people do. Because it's like, I don't care what happens. I don't have any empathy for anybody else. I don't care. That's not true about malignant narcissists. They do feel anxiety because at the core of the narcissist, whether it's classic, covert, malignant, or communal, at the core of the narcissist is a feeling of insecurity. What you're seeing in the narcissist is a false sense of superiority. That's why you can't do anything to help them because they're too fragile. They can't take criticism. They can't listen to you because they're too afraid. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to maintain this superior veneer to dominate. That's why they simply can't be confronted. That's why you can't win an argument with them. They are relentless. They will argue till the end of the earth before they give a point. They won't give. They can't because if they crack the veneer, their fear is they're going to come completely unraveled. Where does this come from? Look, there's a lot of theories about this in the literature. There does seem to be a genetic component that's possibly involved. There does seem to be a high incidence of a chaotic childhood. There does seem to be you know, turmoil and trauma in their lives that made them fearful and insecure. But listen, that doesn't matter. If somebody runs over your foot, why they ran over your foot doesn't make your foot feel any better. If it was an accident versus somebody doing it on purpose, it doesn't make the bones any less broken. It doesn't make the pain any less. So do you really care why someone is a malignant narcissist? Yeah, maybe you do. But it doesn't have a functional difference in your life. You need to get away from these people as fast as you can safely do so. Now, I say as fast as you can safely do so because I said these people are overrepresented in the domestic violence population. And the most dangerous time in a violent relationship is when you leave a violent relationship. Why? Because they're losing control. And when they lose control, they do feel anxiety and they panic and they try to up the level of control. So when you leave, they start doing everything they can to get you back under control and they go too far. The vast majority of serious injuries and murders happen when the abused partner leaves the abuser. 
It's in those few weeks of when you leave the abuser. So domestic violence is a dangerous relationship to leave. You have to have a safe exit plan, and you can find that. You know, Go to the domestic violence hotline. Go to whengeorgiasmile.org, my wife's website. There's steps for a safe exit plan there. There are many, many state and federal resources out there that you can go to. The National Domestic Violence numbers I'll have on our website. So just know that these people don't take well to criticism. So I'm not telling you, when I say get them out of your life, I'm not telling you to get in their face and confront them. There are certain things you don't want to do with a malignant narcissist and criticize as one of them. You don't want to say, hey, you're wrong. (laughs) It's not going to get you anywhere. I mean, you're just venting. It may make you feel better. When you call a malignant narcissist out and you criticize them, they're going to react very, very badly, and they're going to turn on you. When you go to them and say, what the hell's the matter with you? What is wrong with you? Why can't you just be at ease? Why can't you just be at peace with people? Why can't you just sit there and let the day go by? Why do you have to attack people? Trust me, that's not going to end well for you. If it was going to help them, if it was going to change them, then you know maybe I'd say, hey, listen, okay, maybe it's worth it. Go for it. If you're willing to make the sacrifice and you think they're worth it, then go for it. It's not going to help them. So why put yourself through it? You don't want to say things like, you're wrong, what the hell's wrong with you? You've got to have boundaries when you have any kind of narcissist in your life. And one of the things you've got to do when they're gaslighting you, don't defend yourself. If you ever start defending yourself with a narcissist, you will never, ever stop. So when they say, you need to explain why you did that. No, it's okay. I don't need to explain myself to you. I don't need to defend myself with you. Don't take the bait. You need to stop doing that. You need to stop defending your decisions. You need to stop defending your actions. You need to stop defending your life choices and lifestyle, because it doesn't matter what you say, they will never be satisfied. There's nothing you can say, nothing you can do. So stop trying. Stop beating your head against the wall. Look, I've said before, if all of a sudden they show interest in you, they haven't changed. They're just gathering ammunition. So don't be vulnerable with them. You simply don't want to be vulnerable with a malignant narcissist. All they're doing is disarming you long enough to infiltrate your life. They will take you into their confidence. They will share something with you to get you to share something with them. What they shared with you was false. What you share with them is true, and they now have ammunition and you don't. Let's say you work with a malignant narcissist. They will share a criticism of the boss, thinking, hey, 
we're conspiratorial confidants here. They'll pull you over to the side and say, you know what? I think the boss may be drinking during the day. I don't know, but he seemed a little loopy or she seemed a little out of it this morning. I don't know. What do you think? And you might think it's just idle conversation. So you say, well, I don't think it was her best day, but I don't know. I mean, maybe she drinks. I don't know. That's all you got to say. The malignant narcissist will wait till you leave, go into the manager's office and say, I was having a conversation with Carol today. And I was very uncomfortable, and I just need to tell you, because I don't want to be any part of it, but she said, you know, it's not her best day, you know, maybe she's drinking. Now, did you actually say that? Yes. But taken out of context, it now appears that you initiated a gossip session about the boss and spoke those words, and you did. But it was really trying to defuse the bait that was being thrown at you. You can't do that. They will use that to eliminate you and endear themselves to the powers that be, and they will step right over your fired ass and get where they're going. Do not expect them to change. And do not think if you see a different attitude from them that they have changed. And I know I'm sounding very pessimistic, but I'm just telling you they're not going to change. So don't expect them to. They're not going to change. So I'm telling you, don't beat your head against the wall and don't think that you're going to be the one that inspires them. There may be somebody out there that cracks the code for them and brings about a sweeping change in their life. Assume that person is not you. I'm just telling you, if there's a malignant narcissist in your life, and I've given you all the red flags to identify them, and you're really getting good at this because you're becoming an expert. We've been talking about this for a month. If there's somebody out there that's going to change them, you need to assume it ain't you. Because I'm telling you, it's not. I've been doing this over 45 years. You're not the one. These are dangerous people. And that's why I started with narcissism. That's why I've spent so much time on the malignant narcissist. Now, there is a fourth type. And I said I wanted to talk about that. And... I don't know. If somebody said, you have to pick one of the four types of narcissism to spend time with, what would you choose? I would probably choose the communal narcissist because as irritating as they can be, they're probably, in my opinion, the least dangerous of the four. But remember, All four types have the same characteristics, the 
need for attention, constant validation, blah, 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 all the things I've gone through before. I'm not going to make you sit through them again. You're really getting good at this. You don't need me to keep repeating myself. But the communal narcissist is the one that makes us debate whether or not there is any true altruism in the world. Altruism being when you do something just for the sake of someone else. Nothing in it for you. You just do it for the sake of someone else. They're the absolute antithesis of that. They only do something for other people to draw attention to themselves. I call these the gala narcissists. They're the ones that will throw a $10,000 gala to raise $100. Now, they do this because they want their picture in the paper. They want to talk about all of the do-gooding they're doing. They want to wear that on the sleeve and beat the drum and beat you over the head with it and show you how much better than you they are. They want their picture in the paper holding that puppy. They want their picture in the paper down at the hospital with the nurses. They want their picture in the paper planting the trees in the park. They want to have credit for every charitable thing you can possibly imagine. They're the communal narcissist. They want to be known. They don't want to give a penny without their picture being taken. They don't want to give a minute of their time, a bit of their energy without acknowledgement. Now, you may think, well, look, that's okay as long as they're doing it. Well, yeah. That's okay, but the point is, they put their own need for acknowledgement and validation ahead of the cause that they're supposedly supporting. So they will pull the focus onto themselves instead of the children every single time. Whereas if they spent this camera time on the children, They might have raised 10 times as much money instead of on them. They might spend $1,000 on an outfit that if they had just given that to the charity, one of the charities we work with is Feeding America, they get eight meals out of every dollar. They could have got 8,000 meals out of what he or she may have spent going down there to get ready for a picture session. But it's all about them. It has to be about them. You'll run into these people at work. They'll come in and do your work because they honestly believe they're being helpful and they think they are the linchpin that holds everything together. If it wasn't for them, this whole thing would collapse and shut down. It's just they're the most important person there. If they don't get to do everything that they're doing, everything would collapse. Anybody that has any other interest than their interest, whatever it is, whether it's work or a cause, 
or whatever they happen to be focused on at the time, they condescend to them, put them down, criticize them. Because what's important to them at the time and getting attention to them at the time, anybody that's not 100% focused on that and therefore them, they'll trash. They'll put them down every step of the way. They'll overstep their boundaries, particularly when they're volunteering for a cause. These are the people that will create all kinds of drama and problems just so they can solve them. These are the kind of people that will start a fire just so they can rush into the building and save somebody. Now, you may think, whoa, that just crossed the line. Well, yeah, it did. But that's the whole point. It doesn't matter what you do. Everything's got to be about them. If you're playing golf, they're correcting your swing. If you're playing tennis, they're telling you how to serve. They're just way over-involved. And God forbid they're in some kind of a support group. Man, they're going to dominate and take everybody under their wing only for attention. If it really involves time and sacrifice, they'll ghost you like you wouldn't believe. You let the cameras go away. You let attention go away. You let work need to be done that nobody even knows they're doing. No, ain't going to happen because it's all about them. Now, when you're dealing with these people, It's better to avoid saying anything at all because, just like I've said, they're going to gaslight you. They're going to jump to the moral high ground and say, oh, really? So I care too much. Is that what you're saying? So your objection is that I'm trying too hard, that I'm helping too much that I want to draw too much attention to the cause. That, that's what you're saying? You'd rather me be like you and just stand over to the side and let everything just fall apart. Mm, let me tell you, you're just wasting your time. Stay true to your own values. If you're interested in something, you're interested in a cause, don't let them alienate you from that. If you've got somebody down there that's just, oh my God, they just wear you out. It's so easy for you to say, you know, it's just not worth it. Don't let them run you out of something that you really care about. Don't do it. You just got to put up boundaries and just tell them, look, I'm not willing to do this with you. I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to talk about this. You do what you do. I'll do what I do. And they'll bait you. They'll say, well, so you're you're saying you don't, I'm not saying anything. You go do what you do, and I'm going to do what I do. Don't let them run you out. If you are passionate about rescuing animals and you volunteer at the shelter, and there's a communal narcissist down there that's trying to dominate and control and change and dictate and all of that, 
Let me tell you, those animals need your help. Don't let that person alienate you and run you out. Stay true to what you care about. Don't let them control you. And if they try to bait you, just don't take the bait. Just don't take the bait. Just tell them, look, this is not up for discussion. I'm down here to help the animals, and I'm going to go clean these cages. You do whatever you want to do. I'm going to go feed these animals. I'm going to go wash these animals. I'm going to clean these cages. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to put these flyers out. You do whatever you're going to do. I'm not going to have this discussion with you. Don't let them run you out. It's so important that you not let them drive you away from something that you care about and that you are passionate about. Because if they can get it where nobody's paying any attention to anybody but them, they'll do it. And who suffers? The children, the environment, the animals, whoever. Don't let them run you out. Don't take the bait. Okay, so the communal narcissist is that that feels like they have to be the center of attention in any project. They're condescending to anybody that doesn't play the game the way they want it played. And they will try and dominate and domineer and drive you away. Don't let it happen. Don't try to change them, because like I've said, narcissists just simply aren't going to get better. I've told you things not to say to a narcissist because they're going to gaslight you, and you say, well, I'm smart enough to out-gaslight them. Well, take that same energy and spend it on yourself or spend it on something worthwhile because it's not going to benefit the narcissist. You're not going to change them. Well, guys, we spent this time talking about narcissism, the classic narcissist, the covert narcissist, the malignant narcissist, the darkest one of all. And I could talk forever about narcissism and how it plays out in conversations and negotiations and relationships and parenting, every possible way you could imagine. And if you want to hear more about specific things about this, then please let me know. But what I'm going to do next is move on to the borderline personality the borderline personality. If you want to look at it ahead of time, you can. It's really, really interesting, and I promise you, you have someone in your life that has the traits and characteristics of the borderline personality. Now, they may not check every box for borderline personality disorder, but I'll guarantee you, you know people in your life that are that way. These people can get better some. I'm not saying it's a great prognosis, but they can get better some. But if you recognize them, if you know who they are, and you know why they're so volatile and why they have such a disruptive role in your life, it really helps you to handle it. So that's where we're moving next is the borderline personality. Send me your questions. Send me your comments. 
And again, I want you to get at least one person to subscribe and listen to two things, Living by Design and this series on toxic personalities in the real world. I think these are very important things to know for our time, and I'm very passionate about this. So let me hear from you, and I'll see you next Tuesday. We'll be right back. 